If you'll take your Bibles, we're going to turn open to the book of Genesis this morning. In Genesis chapter 14. As we continue to walk our way through the Abraham narrative here and look at Abraham, this man of faith and his life. And this morning we're going to look at Genesis 14 verses 1 through 16 before we get to the account of Melchizedek there. Let's go ahead and let's pray before we open up God's Word together this morning. Genesis 14, verses 1 through 16. Let's pray. Our Father, we are in need of Your Word. There's so many voices. Help us to hear the one clear voice this morning that is needed above all, yours. Would you speak to our minds and our hearts? This is a very odd passage. And yet we confess that we see truth in odd passages such as this. And that this is your holy, inerrant word, that it is living and active. And that it can impress your eternal truths upon our hearts. Would you instruct us in your way this morning? Would you guide us in the way of truth? Would you teach us out of your abundant love and mercy? Give us listening ears and tender hearts to receive. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Genesis 14, verses 1 through 16. This is the holy and errant word of God. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Ketalomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shimabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketalaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketalaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, in Ashtaroth, Kernaim, the Suzim, and Ham, the Emim, and Sheve, Kariathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined in the valley of Siddim with Ketalaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped 
came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. They were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. I need a drink of water after all those names. There's always a lot going on in the world. Always. All kinds of activity. The world never stops. And yet so much of and so many of the events in the world's history quickly disappear and fade. Most things aren't remembered beyond the day, let alone the month or the year or the decade or the century. Even the seemingly important headlines of the day often disappear. Most pass with the age. And yet, some are preserved. We have here uh, an interesting little history lesson that's tucked into the pages of Scripture here in Genesis chapter 14. It is an ancient world conflict. There is a rebellion of some local kings against a greater king, the city of Sodom, along with her allies, Gomorrah and Admah and Zeboim and Bela or Zoar, try to throw off the shackles of their liege king, King Ketelamer. And as they attempt to throw off this ruling of them by Another king, that king, gathers together three of his other kings that are subject to him, and he comes to the region to crush this revolt. Notice there in the text, so he and his allies from Mesopotamia, they journey to the Jordan Valley, but we see in the text that on their way they went down to Seir, and they attacked the Horites. Then they went northwest to attack the, Am the, the Amalekites, verse 7, and then east to defeat the Amorites before they had attacked Sodom and her allies. They kind of started on the east, and they worked their way south, and then a little bit west, and then north, a little bit east again before they went and they attacked the ones that were rebelling against them. Maybe to help us to understand a little bit, we could say it like this, it be like us here in East Lansing, deciding that we are going to revolt. And we ally ourselves with those mighty warriors in Lansing. And so the king in Detroit decides he is going to come over here and crush this rebellion. But on his way here with some of the other minor kings that are under him, Farmington Hills and Troy and some of the others that are coming here with him, they stop first and they attack Williamston, and then they attack Mason, and then they attack 
Holt, and then they work their way up and attack Grand Ledge, and then they attack DeWitt, and then they come down to take us out here in East Lansing and our allies, the Lansing people. I think it was probably a way of making sure that they were sectioned off and they had no other allies to call. They couldn't call the Grand Ledgeites. They couldn't call those Masonites. They couldn't call the, the fierce Holtonians. They were all alone. Five local kings against the four kings all the way from Mesopotamia. Five against four. And the five are not a match for the four. The five don't appear to provide any kind of resistance against Ketelomir and, and his allies. They conquer them. They take away their possessions from Sodom and Gomorrah. And they carry some of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah away and take them off as slaves. Now the question is why is all this history here? Why these kings and why highlight this war? The history of the world is littered with kings. And it's littered with wars and rebellions and subjugations and people being enslaved and being taken away. For every one that appears in our history books, there's a hundred thousand that don't. And there's even less that appear in Scripture. But these kings and this war finds its way into the Bible. This is important enough history to include. Why? Our first point from this text this morning, because God's people are the center of world history. God's people are the center of world history. The story is here because Lot and Abram are here. No Abram, no Lot, no Amraphel or Ketelomir. Lot was taken along with all of, we would guess, a host of other people into slavery as they conquer Sodom and as they conquer Gomorrah. And we read of it because God's people are the center of world history. Because they are the object of God's work in history. Think about this war. It was no doubt a major event in its time. It would have been front page news for the people of Canaan. Canaan the Canaan Network News would have shown this live streaming nonstop because all kinds of people were affected. Homes were destroyed, people were murdered, families were separated, lifelong possessions and riches and family wealth would have been taken. There would have been refugees crossing different borders. And everything would have forever changed for a lot of people. And yet, it's here because of Abram and Lot. God's people are the center of world history. Headlines matter. But what God is doing according to his redemptive purposes matters 
Moses. God's view is directed towards his people. His working in this world is ultimately has his people in mind. Now, now that causes at least two questions that I think we have to answer and we have to wrestle with this morning and, uh, and two safeguards related to that. First, does that mean that we as God's people are to be unconcerned and disengaged from the events of the world? Are we not to care what is happening in the world around us and in headlines? We have to answer with a categorical no. We're not disinterested or uninvolved in the affairs of the world unless we see a connection with the people of God. No, we're very much concerned about the affairs of the world. We're very much involved. We see from the text that Abraham is living in the world. We're told in verse 13 that he had allies. These are pagan people that he has allied himself with. We don't withdraw completely. We can't. Christians at various times have tried to withdraw completely from the world. Say, let the world burn. Christ, make a new one. It doesn't matter what's happening today. Jesus is returning upon the clouds. And they move off into their holy huddle, but it doesn't work. We live in this world, and it is our Father's world. In fact, we've been sent into it. Abram is a light unto the world. We will see that as we walk through the rest of the Abraham narrative. This is one of his, his great charges, is to be a light to the nations. When God's people are sent into the world, they are sent to be a light. God's people are always sent into the world. Jesus prays for the church in John 17. He prays this, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. He's very clear. He prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. When Christ calls us, he doesn't take us out of the world, but calls us from the world so that he can send us back into the world the center of world history, but that does not mean God's people are to be unconcerned and disengaged from the headline news of this world. We are very much to be engaged because we're to be affecting it, this world that we live in. But here's the second question. Does that mean as God's people that we are to be driven by the headlines of this world? And that answer also must be a categorical no. We are to engage, we are to be interested, we are to be involved in the world, but we know this world isn't ultimately about the secular headlines. This account is here because of Abraham and Lot. Our attention is to be much more directed towards what is happening to Abraham and Lot than it is to Bera and Bershah and Shinar. 
What Brother Bob and Sister Susie are doing matters more than what President Trump or Congresswoman Tlaib or Vladimir Putin are doing. What they are doing is important. It's not unimportant, but it's not the most important. This world is passing away along with all of its politics. But Christ's church is not. Paul says in Ephesians 6, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. We're in the world. Do good to everyone. And especially, especially to those who are of the household of faith. God's redemptive purposes and His people first. One of my great fears for this generation of the church is that we are more interested in the headlines of the day than we are the redemptive purposes of God. We spend more time on social media than we do praying. We know news events better than we know our Bibles. Our conversations are filled more with what our government is doing or not doing at this time than what we see Christ doing at this time. He is working. We live in an age when politics is the chief religion, when anger and outrage are the celebrated virtues of that religion. And it's stoked by the twin religious disciplines of watching 24 hour news and scrolling through social media. The politics of this country are not the center of world history. You know it, don't you? That these 24-hour news channels and social media sites, that they are for-profit businesses. You know this, right? It is to their advantage to keep stirring you up. That you have to keep coming back. That you can't stop thinking about everything and be interested in everything. And if you don't speak to everything, there's an advantage to them to keep putting that, foisting that upon you. We make it so you're addicted. And we lose our focus. Some of us need to spend much less time listening to Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and Rachel Maddow and spend more time listening to Moses and Isaiah and Paul and Jesus. And the fact that some of you just had go through your mind that sounds awfully super spiritual shows how much we've lost our focus. We need more times in our Bible and we need more times in prayer so that we know how to read the news, and know how to consider social media. It is so easy to get so distracted by the world. Lot becomes distracted in our text. He gets caught up in the world of his day. As many have pointed out about Lot, there's a progression in his life, a kind of downward descent into identification with Sodom. Look with me, if you will, 
Chapter 13, verse 11, you see there that Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley. We saw that last week in our text. If you look at 13:12, we see that he moved his tent near Sodom. If you flip over to 14:12, we read he was dwelling in Sodom. If you then flip over to 19:1, you see there that we're told that Lot is sitting at the gate. That is, this is the place of the elders and the city officials. Lot has become identified with Sodom at this point. This is Psalm 1. One walks in the counsel of the wicked, then stands in the way of sinners, and then sits in the seat of scoffers. We walk along the way, and then we stand because we're comfortable, and then we sit because we've identified ourselves with it. Lot has lost his focus. And as he's identified himself with the people of Sodom, he is carried off as part of the world's combat that's happening. But here's the second thing I want you to see. He isn't forsaken. I want us to see God's saving goodness. God's saving goodness. Lot is an absolute fool. He chooses the best of the land. It's a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It's got all kinds of prosperity attached to it, and yet it isn't sufficient for him. He's got to move close to Sodom. Why? Something appealing is there. Something about the wickedness of Sodom has drawn in him. Maybe it's the, the wealth, maybe it's the prestige, maybe it's the power, maybe it's wanting to be liked by those people. I don't know what it is, but there's something that takes his focus off, and so he moves as close as he can to Sodom. He's a fool. And yet, God shows him grace. Drawn in, he suffers as a result. But this is the beauty of the text. Our God does not cast him off. He provides Abram to rescue Lot. The Lord works to save people through people. God saves. We see that Abram goes out with 318 men. These would not have been soldiers. These, we're told, are men that were born in his house. So many of them are probably slaves are not warriors. And here he is, he's going to chase down these four kings, these mighty kings and their armies that have carried off Lot and, and others and all of these possessions, these four kings that have crushed five kings and their entire cities and all of their armies. And yet Abram with 318 men, not a huge army, Defeats them. Not only that, but we're told that he divides his army of 318 men, and that is an error in combat. You never, if you have an inferior force, do you divide it when you're facing a superior force. And yet he divides it, and, and he wins. He takes back all the possessions and takes back Lot. Abram trusts God. God and His grace will not forsake Lot. 
because God saves his people. I'm not sure who said it first, but one man with God is a majority. And Abram is looking at the world and he trusts God. And he'll strike out courageously and trust in God. There's no lack of grace on God's part. But there also had to be no lack of love on Abram's part. And that's our final point, what I want you to see from this text. God's people courageously love one another in this world. And here we have a wonderful example in the person of Abram. Abraham, in faith, is willing to pursue his kinsmen. His response is not dismissal. Lot had it coming. Let him reap the effects of his sin he has sown. But, but rather, he's moved to help when he sees need. It is courageous love for his brother. But he had it coming. He walked down the, the path of foolishness. He had bought into wickedness. He was a fool, yes. But he's your brother. Spurgeon, in a sermon on unity in Christ, said this. He said, the Spirit of God is, there must be love. The Spirit of God is, there must be love. You and I can't look at a brother or sister in Christ and look at them as some kind of alien or sojourner, surely not as an adversary or an enemy. We're to see them as a fellow saint, a fellow heir, a child of God. Spurgeon in a sermon he gave, decided to illustrate this. He spoke in the sermon about his hatred for what he called high churchism. High churchism is a kind of formal, ritualistic sacramentalism. And Spurgeon despised that version of the Christian faith. He said this, he went so far as to say, now I hate High churchism as my soul hates Satan. That's pretty strong. But then he says this. But I love George Herbert, although George Herbert is a desperately high churchman. George Herbert was a priest in the Anglican church and, and a poet. And Spurgeon said this, I hate his high churchism. But I love George Herbert from my very soul. And I have a warm corner in my heart for every man who is like him. Let me find a man who loves my Lord Jesus Christ as George Herbert did. And I do not ask myself whether I shall love him or not. There's no room for question. For I cannot help myself unless I can leave off loving Jesus Christ. I cannot cease loving those who love him. If we disregard God's people in this world, we disregard God. If we stop loving the sheep, no matter the cause, we've stopped loving the shepherd of the sheep. 
Abram has to risk his lot, his entire life to save Lot. He's risking all of his family, all of his possessions to go after this man that is a fool, that walked in the way, that had bought into a path of wickedness to some degree. him in love. And all of history centers upon God's people, so must our actions in history. It's not only those who are easy in our lives that we bear responsibility for. It's not only those who are upright that we are to be concerned for. It's not only those who require the least from us that we are to give to. It's not only those who are deserving that we are to love. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your Father is perfect. But how does that look? It looks like our Father in heaven extending love when we were undeserving. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of history is circling around the people of God. And so should our affections. Desperately, I want you to remember to love one another during this time. It doesn't matter if somebody lines up different from you politically. Not in the big picture. It doesn't matter if they're more interested in things that are happening societally or less interested than you are. It doesn't matter if they have different opinions about what we should primarily be on guard against right now. What matters most is that we pursue these things as we also seek to love one another. If a fellow brother or sisters stumble or even their fall along the path is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to courageously love, to bring them back. courageous love. Above all, Peter says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Friends, the headlines of today will be footnotes tomorrow. Most will not even be footnotes in a few years be forgotten. 
within a generation, most people have no clue what you and I are so concerned about with so much of our time today. We're to care about the world. We're to engage in it. You've been sent into it. Engage in it. But do so with God's redemptive purposes and God's people first and foremost in your mind's eye because they are first and foremost in the mind's eye of our God. That's instructive wisdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you are a God enthroned over all of history. And we're thankful that all of history is aimed at your glory and the salvation of your people. Help us, we pray, not to live in a holy huddle, but to be engaged in our world. But help us to do so, always with your eternal purpose and your people first and foremost in our minds. May we be a people that are marked by love for one another, are more passionate about the gospel than our politics. Love to talk more about the things of Christ and what our government is doing or not doing. More quick to... Show others your grace and truth than we are our political badgers. We pray that you would safeguard the church in this generation. We pray that you would help us to be light and salt in this world that is around us. That we would be bold witnesses and bold disciples. we seek to hold on to you and hold on to one another for your glory. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.